0: This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I am here with JJ Jenflone, and we are the host of this podcast.
1: We are the hostess with the mostess, and we are here to bring you truth, sanity, and random anecdotes about human trafficking.
0: Sometimes we talk about history that's related to slavery.
1: Sometimes we just ramble things that are in the news. It's all a mess. But today is a fantastic day because today is a day where I came to Seth with the idea for a podcast entitled, Global Force Was a Dick. And Seth said, you know what? You can do that. And considering the fact that Seth is the brains behind this operation, I did feel like I needed permission in order to do it. So what I'm basically saying is this is all Seth's fault. Please direct all of your hate comments to him.
0: One day we will talk about John Newton, but that day will not be today.
1: Oh, that'll be a beautiful day. You guys will get to hear my sweet, sweet dulcet tones, which is to say I'm a tone deaf, awful singer, opining about Amazing Grace and then also singing it in the background. And that'll be a great day. But in the meantime, all right, so here's where we are. This came from, I have a new friend. Um, I'm very excited when I make new friends. Uh, her name is Ritspa. And she had posted uh, a message on her Facebook about how she was working on on an academic paper about the sort of concept of people in the modern trafficking movement using the the term abolitionist to self-describe and how this has some overlap or some comparison within the white savior complex and in, in particular that trafficking largely affects communities of color minority uh, communities communities that are underrepresented and yet who is generally positioned as sort of the savior or the rescuer of these communities is predominantly uh, wealthy white people from the Western world and how this continues to leave marginalized groups who are trafficked in sort of this to-be-rescued position rather than sort of survivors with agency. And she was just sort of asking community thoughts on it. And I started to post what I thought would be a quick... (laughs) little note back as one often does on Facebook that like I agreed with her that I have a lot of issues with the term abolitionist although I've used it to describe myself and I've certainly used in the past and I've certainly even used it on this podcast before but that recently the more and more I've been thinking about it I, I do sort of see some elements of, of white supremacist thinking or just sort of maybe just the idea of, of privilege thinking existing in it because I think it does continue to position The historic abolitionist, which is a white religious male wealthy landowning man at the head of the movement and when we know that like most on the ground sort of service provision anti-trafficking methods come from people who are in those affected communities um, and who have been hurt by raid and rescue sort of style methods that are based on early abolitionist methods. And so I wrote sort of much ado about nothing. I, I cited all these things and I threw a lot on her Facebook but I ended with me yelling about William Wilberforce, and that was when I stopped myself because I realized maybe I'll, t- I'll terrify my new friend, and she won't be friends with me anymore because generally when you write someone a three-paragraph response on Facebook, that's <laughs> the that's moment they take a step back. So I stopped myself. Um, but because I ended on that Wilberforce quote, it, it got me thinking even more and more about him, and it, and it sent me down sort of a research spiral into him and sort of all the issues that i've had with him since i i got involved in the anti-trafficking movement the, the, the modern human trafficking movement and so i begged seth to let me do this topic it originally was f will before but for the sake of continuing to keep our rating <laughs> friendly for all it will be will was was it was a jag off in in pittsburghese terms and and here is my reason why. For those of you who are unfamiliar with who William Wilberforce was he, was, he was alive from 1759 to 1833. And a lot of this I am actually pulling from, a lot of this info I'm citing right now is from the Abolition Project, which does sort of track William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson. Thomas Clarkson, who we will not be talking today, but clearly I love. I've named my cat after him. Very nice man, uh, but sort of, you know, uh, historic abolitionists, uh, British abolitionists, and then also a text called uh, Distant Ripples of the British Abolitionist Wave, Asia, Africa, and the Americas, uh, that comes out of two French academics, including one, Miriam um, Coltaz, who is actually um, a historian of slave societies in the Caribbean. And she's written uh, two books on that that I actually do highly recommend on slave societies in the Caribbean. Um, including one that talks about sort of like the formation of colonial slave societies. So she's amazing. This book, this book was great. Quick little overview. So if you're at all interested in what was happening elsewhere in the world at the time of the British abolition movement, that's there. But to return, so William Wilberforce, he's an English politician. He's a preacher, and he becomes because he already has a spot in Parliament the guy who is leading the abolition movement. In in Parliament, he's wealthy. John Newton is actually a very distant relative that he went to hear speak when he was a child. So there is some sort of overlap there. Sort of all these abolitionists sort of being being involved with one another. Uh, he was an evangelical Christian, and he actually was became involved in this evangelical Christian life to the point where he had formed a sort of society called the Saints uh, with his wife, his children and sort of followers of of devotees of his cause they did fight against the slave trade and slavery they also fought against prostitution but they also fought and this is where some of we see the early rumblings of trouble for what he called a return to morality and manners which is a very particular type of idyllic english life that he imagined and you see this then reflected in actually then what wilberforce brings forth into parliament so yes wilberforce Force of nature, no pun intended, brings forth two different bills into Parliament to ban the slave trade. He makes beautiful statements against those who are profiting from the slave trade, particularly those who are profiting from the using the slave trade uh, in their colonies, so where it's not seen by the British people, but they are but they are benefiting for it for money. He is pushing for the conception of people not as property but as people. He does get one bill passed in 1792 in the House of Parliament, but that is advocating for gradual uh, manumission. This was something he advocated for at various times, but it does seem like this was... In this, I give him a pass on this because it does seem, if you read actually all the court transcripts, gotta love the Brits. All their stuff is recorded <laughs> and available online, even even from the the late 1700s. Uh, the stuff that he... It, it does seem like that it, it was agree to have a gradual removal of slavery or get no removal of slavery, so it seems sort of like a devil's compromise he entered into to get something. However, the act he passes in 1807, the abolition of the Slave Trade Act, which does get rid of the slave trade in the British colonies, which is exciting, has a lot of problems. It, it's a vote to abolish slavery as a whole throughout the, the empire? No. It's a vote to establish slavery throughout the colony. So it's the trade of enslaved people. So if you're a slave, you're, you're grandfathered into being a slave. There just can be no new slaves entering in. It also does slave. It does allow slavery to continue on in, say, the Caribbean. It does allow British citizens to continue to own slaves in areas outside of Britain. So say if I'm British but I own, say, a cotton plantation as well in the South, I'm allowed to keep that. He, he joins a society called the Society for Gradual Abolition and, and continues to push to, to speed up that gradual, uh, basically to to start making it so that like after a certain number of years, slaves that were grandfathered in would have to be released anyway. But while this is going on, he makes a number of statements, including one in 1979, that Negroes are creatures like ourselves. This is a direct quote. But their minds are uninformed and their moral characters are debased. And continues to make a lot of statements similar to that. And it comes out that William Wilberforce very firmly believed uh, in eugenics. And while he thought that uh, Africans or or people held in slavery at this point generationally, so British, so African British, I guess is how it would be defined, African Americans at at this point, although not taken as citizens. I'm not sure what the correct term is for slaves at this particular time that have transitioned Mm -hmm. within their lifetime. I'm not sure what the term, but so that slaves and freed slaves were human and, and should be freed. He fundamentally agreed in a separation of the races. He thought that every race was fundamentally different from one another. And he believed in a racial hierarchy that positioned white people at the top and, and black people at the bottom. Which Seth is kind of looking me at the face that he does right when I'm about to make a Nazi joke. I'm not. <laughs> I was thinking it, but I decided not to. <laughs> But so he – and he also very fundamentally argued for a number of times that while he was pushing for the abolition of slavery, he did think though then that freed slaves and the descendants of freed slaves and just African people in general would then move into these servant classes and serve white people. He he certainly was not pushing – while he was pushing for an end of enslavement, he was not pushing for equality. Those are very different things. Thomas Clarkson, who we're not going to talk about here today, was pushing for full equality, which is why I love him so much. He did it kind of problematically in a way that was very victim blaming, and and mm-hmm. that was very sensationalistic, and that would not be acceptable today. But because he is pushing for full equality, I, I give him some bonus points that I don't give to Wilberforce.
0: He's the unsung hero of the anti slavery movement in England. Like yeah. he was instrumental. And he doesn't get near the credit, credit that he deserves.
1: And I think it's because he died young, honestly, is that he, he dies fairly early in, in the movement and that he is much more involved on the sort of what we would now call community organizing or grassroots organizing. He's the one running about getting people to sign petitions. He's the one going to far-flung areas and giving presentations and trying to drum up public support and fundraising, was the legal front. Also, at the time of his death... Uh, Wilberforce's children write a book on the history of the abolition movement in England that actually rips into Clarkson and says that he was kind of a, a rake in this uh, red-haired devil and, and that th- their dad was involved with everything. So you do sort of have a lot of that jockeying for who gets to be head of the abolitionist party. And as Clarkson died young and didn't have any extended family, he didn't really have anyone to fight for him. But so Wilberforce finally, right before he dies in 1833 abolition of slavery bill does pass in the house of commons and then historically like they run to tell will before he dies three days later you know finally able to quote unquote let go but if you actually look at his speeches particularly his speech to the house of commons in 1789 there is a lot of really racist rhetoric that is present and, and this isn't me splitting hairs and being, like, the language that he uses to describe them saying, like, Negroes and things of that nature, like, n- which is a historical linguistic problem. No, 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 no. He is straight up articulating that he feels that there is a fundamental difference between blacks and whites. Uh, to quote again, it would be wrong to emancipate, to grant freedom to them immediately would be to ensure not only their master's ruin, but their own. They must be trained and, educa- and educated for freedom. My issue with Roble Force is one that he's been held up to be, and I'll link you guys too. I, I also pulled some of the stuff from from an, um, an article called "Slavery and the Birth of Working Class Racism in England," which is sort of this idea that as slavery became abolished, and suddenly the idea that blacks would then be on equal footing legally with whites, that now you have this explosion of slavery in England. Um, I really. Really recommended. It. it came out in 2016. It won a number of awards. It's a fantastically written article by Ryan Hanley, and and it's actually um, available for free on Google Scholar. So I would really pick it up if you're not a reader. There's also um, a BBC series that came out on BBC Four in 2007 called "Racism: A History," that is phenomenal. In particular, you want the the third episode, "A Savage Legacy," but the other two. Uh, prior to it the color of money and fatal impacts are both equally good i would actually sit down and watch all of them but if you don't want to spend like nine hours of your life being sad skip to the final three uh, and watch that third episode position but so there are a lot of people in in the modern human trafficking movement who have a lot of problems with Wilberforce being positioned as this great emancipator this great leader this this great man through which all other forms of human trafficking frameworks or emancipatory frameworks should follow from because he's not arguing for equality, because he's arguing from the position of a religious white savior, because he, uh, Wilberforce also thought that women should never get the right to vote because we are weak-minded stupid creatures that need the guidance of a man i'm also looking at that thinking of all the terrible jokes i could make but i'm not going to it's, it's sort of one of those things where will had a lot of issues and and as a result a lot of the legal documents that were drafted for the abolition of slavery in britain which is sort of hailed as the first western state to abolish slavery in, in mass long before the u.s did is, is meant to follow and be held up on one hand, people will say, well, it was just sort of the legacy of the times. But the problem is, is that we have now carried that, though, into, you know, modern people in human trafficking, referring to themselves as abolitionists in the Wilberforceian way. And we've seen as workers in, in the human trafficking sort of in- industry, a lot of times the people who are supposed to be helping, saving, if you will, to use the abolitionist dialectic, are, are being harmed by the methods we're using to save them. Because of how we position ourselves as sort of, and I'm just saying like we as like people in the field in general, as sort of the head solution where they themselves are, are beneath that. And it's, it's the creating of hierarchies that maybe don't need to be there. And I would say, again, that's perhaps why I really liked the education I got here at the University of Denver, um, because starting with reading like Pedagogy of the Oppressed and sort of this idea of hierarchies of suffering and how what your role is as a of provider was super useful. But I, I just have a, a lot of concerns about this continuously positioning of him, Wilberforce, as sort of the be-all, end-all. And also the fact that in that positioning, we've overlooked a couple of other heroes of the abolitionist movement. Not just um, Thomas Clarkson, who, amazing guy, did a lot of great work, but specifically people of color within the abolitionist movement. In Britain who were fundamental in the struggle and have been almost completely overlooked by history or overlooked within the human trafficking field, which is almost then like we're erasing the very people that help create the system that we now live and work in. I'm going to rattle off a few names and and a few really brief things. I will include the links to all of these. But Mary Prince was the first black woman to publish her life story in England. She wrote a book in 1831 about slaves living in Bermuda and Antigua for readers in England. And if you are all familiar with slaves in uh, the British colony system, particularly in Antigua, it was exceptionally brutal. Exceptionally brutal. Torture human experiments, um, working on sugar cane plantations where people suffered terrible burns. Uh, the, the life expectancy there was incredibly short. Um, she wrote particularly of what it's like as a child to be separated from her mother and siblings, the brutal working conditions, how how she escaped and survived. And her writing was actually was one of the things that galvanized women to sign on to boycotts of sugar and other slave-produced colony goods because women saw themselves in her, saw this discussion of what it is to be a sister, what it is to be a mother, what it is to be taken from your children, what it is to be beaten, and to feel your position as a woman. And it was a woman writing to women. And so women in, in mass joined onto this cause in large part because of her book. We never talk about it. Her book exists. I can't tell you if I've ever heard of another person in human trafficking, reading that book and wanting to discuss it with me. Odeba Kugano was the first African to publicly demand total abolition. (laughs) Um, He became a free man. He started to work in England. He was a leader of the African community in 18th century London, which prior to reading his work, I didn't know there was an African community of free men in 18th century London. They had a trade guild. They had a neighborhood that they essentially run um, he was born in, in what we now would call Ghana today. His book, Narrative of Enslavement of a Native of Africa, you can still get access to. It's terrible because he, when he was when he was kidnapped and sold into slavery, he was old enough to remember his whole family. And this isn't a child born into slavery. This is a child who was old enough to know that he had a family. He was free. Um, and he was captured one day when out playing. I, I, I was either with his siblings or his cousins at some sort of family member and taken away from them um, and then sold in Granada. Which also suffered, you know, severe, severe um, beatings. Um, he also then put out sort of what would be, at the, what they would call that time a tract, but we would call maybe like a novella called Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil and Wicked Traffic of the Slavery and Commerce of the Human Species. Uh, this you can find on JSTOR. It's, it's like a photocopy. Uh, it's old Englishy script, so it's a little hard to get through. But he was the first person um, to demand emancipation of all slaves. And then from from that head was a previous slave, and also the balls on this guy, he got it all the way to George the Third. He got his pamphlet to the king to be like, you've got to read this. This is my life. You have to free slaves. Now, King George 3rd doesn't care. He he completely dismisses him, doesn't pay attention. But imagine what you would have to do to work your way up from penniless free man all the way to being able to to get your writing to the king and like, why isn't that movie made? What movie about a guy who landed a plane in the Hudson after it got attacked by geese? Ooh, inspirational. Not to, not to make fun of him. Oh god, now I'm gonna get tweets about it. There's Audu Aquano. That one, um, he actually does get cited. Uh, I think a fair, mm-hmm. a fair bit. Yeah. Um, probably I, I've out read of his book. Yeah, probably out of everybody. Um, just because he, uh, he he was kidnapped from Nigeria, but he actually was able to purchase his freedom. He actually became quite quite wealthy. He attempted to form a settlement in Sierra Leone for freed slaves to live and work. Um, he was in the Sons of Africa, which is an amazing organization that I think we need more historical work on, um, on sort of the, the, the nonviolent civil resistance movements that they initially started in England. I think sort of the, the early precursors to the nonviolent civil resistance movements that came after the military resistance in Haiti. Uh, to sort of try to keep western influences out you see a lot of overlap there um so him you hear about but then we also don't hear um but like still not i think he's not in, i think he's con- he, i think he's well known in the human trafficking world he's certainly not known well outside this then this poor gentleman whose name i'm going to say so terribly Yugoslav gronoswa um he he publishes narrative of the most remarkable particulars in the life of James Albert, an African prince, as related to by himself. Um, he's from Borneo, present day Nigeria. He was sold at the age of 15. So, again, we have somebody who has hit adulthood, kind of a, I mean, at the time period, young adulthood, but adulthood. So, he remembers everything, but he was purchased by a Dutch captain, and as he reports, he was purchased for two yards of checked cloth. And he eventually works his way up to becoming a free man and a Calvinist minister in New York. So very smart guy. Very lear- um, learned. But he, he's he's interesting because he's writing in the Calvinist system and he's writing on Calvinist doctrine when a lot of Calvinists own slaves. And he has this sort of position. A lot of people have looked at this text, the few people who read it, as being an interesting look into psychological coercion about how – Someone could could look at themselves and have and be a freed slave and have sort of an ambivalent view of slavery. But it's important, and his work got a lot of Calvinists who owned slaves to rethink this whole process because he was actually saying, "I'm a Calvinist minister. I am someone who is an authority figure in your church." Yet, you would have attempted to own me, which I think is super interesting. And then finally, uh, Louis Seletz, I don't speak French. Um, and he was a slave held in Jamaica, at one point held on St. Domingo. He um, traveled all the way to England and actually fought for his freedom in court and also his declared innocence in court, Um, and they were sold alone from their families, and he attended the first anti-slavery convention, Um, and actually, if you look at the painting, a very famous painting from the first anti-slavery convention, he is one of only three people of color in the f- in, in the painting from the first anti-slavery convention who is present so that's a big big deal and while he didn't write a book or anything he has he left behind a long legacy of letters that was bound and then saved and unfortunately we don't ha- i don't i couldn't find a place to get open access to them they're held at the, at the british national library so maybe go in person request them to look at them or request them to look at mimeograph but these are all phenomenal people who existed in this time period who were working but oftentimes not working with William Wilberforce because William Wilberforce would not work with freed slaves or just blacks in general because he considered them to be a different class to himself. So he is working for the for the legal freedom of slaves, saying that that he feels this is a mission from God to free slaves of slaves or humans, but he's qualifying it that slaves are a different type of human in his world. And so the fact that the human trafficking movement doesn't acknowledge that and doesn't acknowledge that there were all these other people working tirelessly men, women, people of color, like on the streets with no social capital they or or very little social capital they weren't wealthy land like British landowners um Global Force eventually marries a woman who's filthy rich like they don't have the sort of clout that he does or actually the sort of safety, this legal safety, and control that he does, and yet. He keeps trucking um, and and they keep doing it. So I would just really, really like to see more people sort of acknowledge that. And then maybe instead of us pushing to be abolitionists, we, we we post to be anti-traffickers. And we acknowledge when we talk about the abolitionists, the positives and the negatives. You don't have to demonize these people we've held up to be heroes, but I think we have to be realistic about them. I think not being realistic about the people we've previously built monuments to just sort of lets this insidiousness grow in the field. I don't know if you feel the same way or if you feel like I'm making much ado about nothing or or what. I don't know how you feel about it.
0: Well, looking at anybody from 100 years ago to 200 years ago, like to have an honest look at who they are. Yeah. Like we did one on Thomas Jefferson and he yeah. he laid the groundwork for future – Abolitionistic and anti slavery efforts. Yeah. But he also owned slaves. Yeah. And kept owning slaves. So there's this dichotomy. And, uh, you know, even Lincoln, it's hard to know fully what Lincoln thought because he had to qualify it publicly so often. Yeah. But, you know, there's reason to believe that he didn't think full equality was practical either. So.
1: And we didn't really get to see Lincoln post emancipation. Really yeah either it's hard to say what his administration would or would not have done time frame wise but yeah he wasn't for he wasn't for equality either like let's let's be let's call a spade a spade, you can be for the ending of human trafficking, you can be for the ending of slavery, and you can still be racist. it doesn't make you a good person well, automatically you don't get a free pass,
0: whatever a good person even is
1: yeah do you, i don't yeah,
0: but fair, but to recognize that Wilberforce. Was instrumental in bringing about legislation against the slave trade that laid the groundwork for ending it worldwide. Like, and that that was very difficult. Like, he he had to be politic, yeah, in order to make anything happen because people were not f- for doing away with the slave yeah. trade. It was too profitable. It was also too much part of the cultures. So he. He did something really important. We need to acknowledge that. And J.J. isn't saying that we're not acknowledging that he did a great work.
1: Yeah. We're
0: saying that he's not all he's cracked up to be.
1: And, and I guess that's sort of my, my thing is that I think that when we don't acknowledge who we hold up to be heroes and why we hold them up to be heroes, we're doing a disservice to the very communities we're claiming to serve that were in, in part way hurt by these heroes. Does that make sense? At all. I just, I feel like it's sort of, yes, I am incredibly thankful that William Wilberforce got up every day and fought for legislation that eventually did lead to the abolition of slavery throughout the empire. Very much so. However, the fact that he did it from the position that blacks would never be equal to whites and that women would never be equal to men has had trickle-down effects where I think in the human trafficking community, particularly the the weird intersection we have in the Human Trafficking Committee of religion and politics together in the human trafficking community, has continued to position men over women and whites over people of color when it comes to who is an authority on ending trafficking or defining slavery or or being sort of the head of slavery organizations, anti-slavery organizations rather, and what terms get used and what sort of political power it gets it, Pushed out, and is part of that just because the world has been predicated in such a way that like the privileged positions have largely gone to people who look like William Wilberforce. Sure, but if we don't acknowledge that there's other stuff at play here too, I think we're 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 being willfully naive, and then that in its own way is doing a type of violence. Just out here trying to give a full explanation of stuff that's going on out there in the world, and I think that that's still present if you look at. Like, William Wilberforce's name now, too, is even used for, like, people who are pushing for the removal of pornography from the internet because of sort of his writings about pushing. Yet, Wilberforce is still a historically black college (laughs) with the name of one. So, like, there's a a lot going on with William Wilberforce. He's a complicated figure, but I think if we don't acknowledge the complications and instead only put forward the same way with Newton – if we only put forward, hey, this guy was perfect, we're glossing over a lot of dirty bits in our own history.
0: Yeah, well, and it doesn't diminish heroes or people who've done great things to see their negative size or to see where they were wrong. I mean, in some ways, it's even encouraging because it shows that it doesn't take perfection To take a positive step. But also the importance of being honest about ourselves, about where we can be wrong, about our influences, about injustices that still need to be taken care of. Like we can't solve things like human trafficking if we're in denial about, say, slavery existing after the Civil War, which it did.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's – Wilberforce fought for, for, for slaves to be freed, but he also called anyone who, who, was, who was characterized as African as an ignorant, low, peevish, a bloody, and a thievish race. That was also his opinion. His opinion was that they should be freed, but also that they were fundamentally unequal. And that leads to this idea, I think, of this violent paternalistic, in many ways sort of wrongly <laughs> theological vein that runs through the modern anti-trafficking movement. And that's why there's a whole thing about anti-William Mobile Force on, on a site called AfricanHolocaust.net. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like that I actually think they do a really good breakdown of Mobile Force. Um, they're maintaining that they shouldn't, you shouldn't credit Mobile Force with, with anything in terms of magnificent contribution because they, they claim largely that it would have happened anyway because of an economic decline. I don't necessarily agree with them, but I, I do get a lot of their points about this idea of the white man's burden being positioned at Wobble force and this idea of a white savior being and white super, superiority and supremacy being positioned by global force. And that's that's still here. It's still here in this field. You and I see it all the time. We've talked about it on this podcast a bunch. And I think people who, like service providers, see it all the time. And then I think we're, we're finally now seeing it being reflected in the literature with people coming out with like actual studies of, we're actually getting data in now of, of how this reflects. So,
0: And with that, uh, we'll... Bid you goodbye till next time.
1: I stand by my, I stand by my statement. Well, before I was a jerk. Bye, guys. Bye.
0: This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.